this of a couple of things uh, from the book of Hebrews I shared a little bit uh, yesterday. Um, but in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, chap uh, verses 1 and 2, and then I'll jump to Hebrews chapter 2, and then I'll jump to Hebrews chapter 3, and then I'll jump to Hebrews chapter 4. And it'll just be a couple of verses. But just to lay some of the foundational work of understanding the culmination of the promise and the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and the, the plea, the exhortation to pay more careful attention to what we have heard, and, and, uh, and then thirdly, uh, w when we hear his voice, uh, that we do not harden our hearts. So just track with me, just a, a few. We can't expound. I'll just read them. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The culmination, the pinnacle, the fulfillment of God's plan is his son. Chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Well, God, who, bore witness, who also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Hebrews 3, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they will always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And then he goes on, since therefore we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firm our confession, etc. And, and just, just laying a groundwork of understanding the, the, the word of God, the present tenseness of the word of God, and the exhortation, plea to remember today when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't, don't, don't take it lightly. Our posture uh, ought to reflect that this is a living, active word of God that finds its culmination 
in, yep, God spoke in various times, various ways, through various means, but now he has spoken in his son. And uh, that's what we remember uh, this day. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that we have the word not just incarnate, but we have the word inscripturated. And Lord, we, we hear the exhortation, we hear the, the loving exhortation of uh, the uh, preacher, the author of Hebrews, and Lord, we, we, we take it to heart. And this is not something that we do alone. There's a corporateness to it. Let us, let us, encourage one another today as long as it is called today that we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin that we will when we hear the word of God we will respond in joyful obedience help us dear God guide us now we pray this morning and and Lord we will be focusing on on important truths and and it's not it's not separate from life out there outside it's in the reality of life outside and so even as John said, he may have to de uh, uh, depart for a few moments to, to talk with elders about what we do on Sunday. Lord, it's, it's grounded. Their decision, their discussion will be grounded in what you have revealed in your word. Even though coronavirus uh, cannot be found in a, uh, uh, a dictionary, Bible dictionary, uh, or a concordance, it's not as if this catches you by surprise. And so, Lord, everything we do uh, is... We need, we need wisdom from above that you give in your words so that we know how to live wisely down below. And so, Lord, that, that's our prayer. Guide us this morning as we continue to learn, not just for the sake of learning, but it's for the purpose of transformation. That, that gets to the reason that, that the Scripture is God. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable. And, and so, Lord, that we, want it, we, we are equipped, and not just equipped for every good work, but that we are conformed to the likeness of the Son. Guide us to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, a number of things uh, that we're going to talk about this morning, and so uh, put your seatbelts on and we'll jump in again. Um, and so yesterday, you remember where we ended yesterday? What were we going to start with this morning? I know, I know, it's their first thing in the morning. Do you remember? Right there, yeah, some historical challenges. Some historical challenges. And, you know, I'm just going to go through these. The, the, I've just chosen five. There are many, many more that we could have chosen. Uh, these are some critical ones, a couple of them in the early centuries of the church. And part of what happened was in the early, early centuries of the church, these, these heretical responses were used of God to formulate and forge orthodox responses. And it's not as if, it's not as if um, th that they created these sorts of things. It was that they were attempting to faithfully articulate that which God had revealed in the scriptures, the inerrant original manuscripts, right? Um, and, and they were responding to some of these errors and some of these heresies that were arising. And what are some of them? I just, just list them briefly. You know, one is Marcionism from the second century. And Marcionism, friends, lives on well. We talked about it a couple of times yesterday. That is, that is when one is unhitched from the Old Testament, that is, that is to say when, when we can approach the New Testament as if, as if the Old Testament is, is obsolete, um, it, it's, it's not necessary, it's, you know, whatever, that's Marcionism all over again. It's, it's, it's just dressed up in contemporary garb. 
it's, it's got new 20, uh, you know, 2020 clothing, but it's, it's really just a second century uh, heresy. Whereas Marcion pitted the old and the new, the God of the Old Testament who was wrathful and the, and the Jesus of the New Testament who was loving, remember? I mean, we hear that time and again. And, you know, we're coming now uh, in the season of, of, of Lent. We're coming to Good Friday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter celebration. And we're gonna, we'll hear it again. We're going we're gonna to read about it again, whether it's in Time magazine, whether it's in Newsweek magazine, whether it's in USA Today. What you're going to hear is some exposition that, that, that you know, some see the cross as, as you know, God punishing his son. and We're going to read it, right? We're going to read it. And that's not a God I could, I could worship. You ever heard that before? Yeah, you're going to hear it again. And, and in essence, this is what it is. It's, it's the old heresy of Marcionism. It's pitting one against another. It's pitting, and you cannot pit one of God's attributes against another. You can't do it without, without creating a different God. This is Farabach. That is to say, we're just simply speaking of God with a, with a loud voice. But it's not the God who's revealed himself, plain and simple. That's Marcionism, pitting the love of God against the wrath of God or the, or the justice of God or the holiness of God, right? Um, much more we could say about that, but I think that will suffice. I think we, we talked about that a little bit yesterday as well. A second is Mar- Martinism. Again, these are, these are, what I'm talking about here are issues that have addressed, that, that, have, that have undermined the Bible, and the Bible's authority. That, that's why I've included these. The second is Montanism. Anyone familiar with Montanism? Yeah, so uh, how would you define or describe it, John? Okay, well, <laughs> let me help you. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, so you had, you had Montanus, you had his associates Prisca or Priscilla and Maximilla. Uh, and what, what they were uh, giving themselves to was the new prophecy. The new prophecy. And it was, it was a summons to prepare for the return of Christ by heeding the voice of the paraclete. Catch this. Guess, guess who, through whom the paraclete is speaking? Well, the new prophets. Montanus, Maximilus, and Priscilla. Or Maximilla, sorry. And it's, the, it's through the first person, through his prophetic mouthpieces. They, cl- they claim to stand in the line of Christian prophecy, sort of like John, Revelation. But their ecstatic utterances were falsely, they were false, and they did run counter to the tradition of Israelite and Christian prophecy. This is Montanism. Once again, hear this. They considered themselves to be the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit, and what they claimed was on par with the Scriptures and carried a similar authority. In fact, it carried greater weight since it was personal and immediate and contemporary, which had more weight and authority than what the Holy Spirit had inspired in the past, which was written with ink on paper captured in the Scriptures. Do you think that iteration lives on? Wow, only too much. So, so I think the Montanism, this, this need for additional revelation, and, and, or not the need, but the, but the authority, you know, and, and, it's, and it's coming through us, and, and um, uh, it, it, lives, it lives on. It's alive and well, sadly, but, it, but it's alive and well. And, and what we're getting at here is we're getting at the sufficiency of Scripture. This undermines the sufficiency of the scriptures. 
It's not sufficient. And inevitably what happens is it finds its next iteration or its sufficiency in, by the way, me, <laughs> or, or the prophetic mouthpiece, whoever that might be. And that person ends up then speaking on par with the Scripture. And, and, and you, you catch, you, you have to feel the weight of this. That is, and this, this is, I think, what's happening often today as well. And that is, that the, those, are just, those are just dead words on a page. The Bible, that is to say, the Bible is dead words. It was written 2,000 years ago. What, what does it have to say to me today? And so we need something more contemporary. We need something more personal. We need something more direct. Isn't that often what we're hearing? This, this is it. I mean, this is, this is right. So the, it's a new iteration, ongoing iteration. That's why it's important to know Montanism. Uh, third, tradition and enthusiasm. This is the 16th century. In brief, you're probably more familiar with this than, than the others, and that is the reformers were fighting on two fronts. On the one hand, they were fighting against the tradition of, of what had become the, the papal authority and, 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 and the, the magisterium and, and the authority of tradition with a capital T. Now, sadly, like most good Protestant evangelicals, we lop off anything that would have any connection with Roman Catholicism at all. That's not all healthy either, I'm just saying. And so we don't even have tradition with a small t. That's changing, and that's, that's, that's a good thing. There is tradition with a small t, and it's, it's, it's okay to have tradition with a small t. Uh, by the way, Yaroslav Pelkin said this, and I think this is very helpful to remember. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. It means nothing. But, but you can recite it. Tradition, on the other hand, is the living faith of the dead. That's a good thing. That, that's a good thing. When we, when, we, when we publicly profess the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, whatever, you know, that, that's, that's tradition. Um, tradition grounded in, in the scriptures. But they were fighting, they were fighting against that. That is, that is it, was, it was competing against the scriptures is what it was, was doing. But on the other hand, they were fighting against the enthusiasts. The enthusiasts what is what would be the, the, in line with the Montanists. Um, and it was, it was more the, uh, what would have been the radical Anabaptists. Um, that that they, were, they were really, uh, they, they were similar to the Montanists, that the Spirit was speaking to them and through them. And, and so, so the Reformers are dealing with, on, on, on two fronts, tradition traditionalism on the one side, and the enthusiasts or the, 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 the Spirit, the prompted, uh, uh, immediate uh, revelation, whatever, on the other. And that's important to, uh, to remember. Fourth, uh, Schleiermacher. Um, Schleiermacher, who is known as the father of liberal theology. And what's happening here um, with Schleiermacher is he turned religion or Christianity um, from something external to something internal. That is, it, it, was, it was sort of your awareness of your dependency upon God. And you can begin to see that this is, this is sort of another step of um, uh, Descartes that we talked about yesterday, I think, therefore I am, where, where you know, th there's this internal uh, uh, determination of, of what is true and what isn't, and, and you can see where, where that can become problematic. Uh, uh, Schleiermacher is, is known as the father, the father of liberal theology uh, because he's, he's, he, he's acknowledging Scripture on the one hand, but he, he changes how, how Scripture is understood and Scripture is, is interpreted. And, and he really sets the stage for where we are today. And I'm going to look at l l theological liberalism, and that is it's, it's, it, it, it centers on how we understand the Bible. And so that's what I'll say about that. And, and he's, he was very influential. Uh, we still live with the implications 
so much more I could say, but we still live with implications of uh, Schleiermacher. Uh, another is postmodernism. I think postmodernism has, has created a host of issues. You know, Kevin Van Hooser has written, is there a meaning in the text? Is there a meaning in the text? Um, where there's, there's incredulity to the, to the narrative, the meta-narrative, that is there's no, there's no overarching story sort of thing. I think there are also huge issues with postmodernism, um, post really 1960s, I mean it's dated at diff different period of, periods of time, but, but you could probably um, mark it, track it, uh, with the, sort of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Uh, where there was just a, 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 a significant change, things became internal. And all of these things, th they build, right? So Schleiermacher builds, and there are other sorts of things that are happening in the middle of there. There's Farbach, uh, who I mentioned uh, again this morning. And then there's postmodernism that happens. Postmodernism comes, now there's the, also the uh, early 20th century where, there, where there's theological liberalism, and, and that's where the fundamentalists uh, the, 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 the 12 volumes of the Fundamentals of the Faith were written in uh, 1910 to 1915, um, responding to some of this stuff. And, and you had uh, 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 Fosdick, who was, who was a, a, a theological liberal and preaching about, um, you know, uh, 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 a cross without Christ and, and a host of other things that he would describe. He didn't describe it that way, but the liberal uh, did. And, and so we're living now with postmodernism. I think this has profound implications. All of these things are, are related to the Bible and how we read and understand the Bible. This one, I think, is profoundly affecting how we read the Bible. In a moment, I'm going to go through six, I think, key presuppositions or, or, or biases or understandings by which we come to the text that profoundly impact our interpretation of the text. And what I mean by that is think of a person like Matthew Vines. We talked about him last time. Matthew Vines uh, professes to be uh, an evangelical. He professes to affirm the authority of the Bible, and he claims that the Bible mandates or sanctions or at least allows same-sex marriage. Now, how in the world can you come up with an interpretation that says that, something that God allows, you know, uh, uh, and, and how you can do that, over against what, what the Bible clearly prohibits. How in the world can you do that? And I would say this, friends, if we can make the text do that, I have no hope that the text has any authoritative meaning at all. How are you going to figure it out? Who's going to figure it out? And the fact is, none of us can, because in, in our day and age, um, you lost your voice. You have no voice because there's someone that, that, that is worse off than you, that it's going to, it's just, we'll look at that. But, but I think, <coughs> excuse me, I think this is, this is major. And we've got we've to come to terms with this. Um, and we'll come to it in just a moment. So, so here's theological liberalism. And, I, and I, the reason I'm talking about this is because this, this is at the heart of the Bible. It's, it's at the heart of how we understand the Bible. And I don't want us to be unwise because I think what, what the temptation is, we sort of slide in these directions when we're not even aware of it sometimes. So what, what are some of the, the, the premises of theological liberalism? Well, there are five common features or characteristics of uh, liberal theology. This comes from Stan Grenz, Roger Olson, 20th Century Theology. Um, and... And they, they identify these, and they don't, they're, they're not having an axe to grind against it. I mean, I think, I think they're, they're addressing it, I think, fairly. Um, and um, so notice they begin with Schleiermacher. You can see when he lived. 
He is known as the father of modern theology. The liberals were committed to the task of reconstructing Christian belief in the light of modern knowledge. Now, how many of us are opposed to modern knowledge? Well, none of us are, right? But what we would say is that the Bible is the interpretive lens that God has given us, his revelation, by which we understand things that are going on. That's why I prayed that John and the elders, you'll have, you'll have wisdom from above to know how to live pastorally below, right? I mean, but, 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 it's, but God, God has said something. He is, he, is the divine, he is the divine interpreter of what we experience, I may not deny your experience. I may question your experience, but, but I, I, I may mostly question your interpretation of your experience. Just because you interpret, just, your, your experience is one thing, your understanding of your experience is another thing, and, and today, with our, the day in which we live, the postmodern day in which we live, your experience and your interpretation of that experience cannot be questioned because if, if, if it is, you're, you're denying I'm my personhood. Right? I mean, that, that's just, that's where we are. And so what's happening with theological liberalism, th it's reversed. So if the foundation and the lens by which we look at everything else is the Bible, God, and his word, and then we understand those sorts of things, we're not opposed to them, but we're trying to understand them. Theirs is reversed. So they're looking out there, and then they're looking back at the text, right? So they're looking out there, they're, they're, they're living out there, they're, and they're using that as a lens by which they look at the text and then reinterpret the text. That's theological liberalism. In light of modern knowledge, they believe that certain developments in culture since the Enlightenment simply could not be ignored by Christian theology, but had to be assimilated into it in a positive way. Now, you can begin to see some of the push, some of the rub, was that the fundamentals or the fundamentals of the faith or those that were claiming they, they, were, they were Christians, right? The tendency was to pull away from culture. It, the tendency was to pull away from anything that was, that was out in the culture, right? It was, it was to separate and that happens later as well. But that was part of the tendency. So, so what, what's, what's the right response? Do you separate or you, do you assimilate? Uh, strike two. Neither one, right? But that's what's happening here. It, it had to be. It had to be assimilated into, into it in a positive way. Second, a second characteristic of liberal theology was its emphasis on the freedom of the individual Christian thinker to criticize and reconstruct traditional beliefs, the individual. So, so again, wh where are we today? That is anti-institutionalism, anti-belief, anti-etc. I mean, it's just it's the nature of it. Well, it's, it's grounded here. It, it's taken some new forms but it's grounded here in, in theological liberalism. Negatively, this entailed the rejection of the authority of tradition or church hierarchy to control theology. Now, you know what? That's the Protestant Reformation. So that is not all bad. I mean, we would not necessarily disagree with that, but, but depending on how that's done. In some ways, <clears throat> some might say, you know, th this is sort of the, the Christian thinker to criticize and reconstruct traditional beliefs. Uh, how many remember the, uh, the emergent church? 90s. The emergent church has submerged. Well, you know, here, here's what was happening. It was trying to do all this stuff and trying to do it sort of through asking questions. You know, I'm just asking questions. I, I'm just asking questions. You remember that in the 90s? Uh, you know, it was uh, Brian McLaren who wrote book after book about these matters and, and, and uh, Tony Jones and Doug Paget and Doug Paget pastors in Minneapolis. Um, Doug Paget was a youth pastor with Leith Anderson. 
if you remember. Um, all that to say, th- 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 we're just asking questions. Well, there was a, there was a, there, there was a, a motive behind the, the questions, and what has happened with most of them, they've, they're clearly theolog- theologically liberal. And in, virtually every one of them are, are LGBTQ affirming. Are we surprised? Four, our third, liberal theology focused on the practical or the ethical dimension of Christianity. In other words, get, get, off, get off the doctrine, man. Just get off it. It's just about living. Just live, right? It's, it's, about, it's about praxis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, but not apart from, not apart from truth, right? It's not apart from truth. It's not, it's not either or. It's both and. So what you're going to find is you're going to find antitheses here. The bifurcation or the antitheses or the this or that. And there's an article that Don Carson would say, damn all antitheses to hell. Like this. It, it's so orthodoxy or orthopraxy. Justification or sanctification. What? That's not the right order. That's not how you ask the question. It's not an or. And that's often what's happening here. Um, Interestingly, um, I read, uh, I listened to a podcast. Uh, some of you might know the name Peter Enns. Mike, what do you know about Peter Enns? He was. Yeah. Uh, P- <laughs> P- Peter has moved really quite a long ways away. Uh, uh, he, is he even there? <laughs> he, he might be. Um, but... All, all, I know he was. All that to say, um, um, Pete ends, I was listening to this uh, podcast, um, and, and Pete is doing pretty much, Pete and Bart, Bart Ehrman, Pete's an Old Testament scholar, Bart Ehrman's a New Testament scholar, and they're former evangelicals, the ex-evangelical, and they, they, they work really hard at undermining and, uh, and, 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 and disparaging the evangelical faith. They work very hard at that. That's not a good thing, it's, but, but they are. Um, and they've, 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 they've hurt many. Um, and I was listening to this podcast, and they had on there um, uh, a New Testament scholar who's written on um, hell. And, and of, of course, you know it's going to be figurative, it's going to be, and, and I just, it just, this is exactly... It's the ethical, and that's, that's, that was the essence of what the person was saying. It's just, you know what, the teaching on hell, it's just be nicer. It's just be nicer. Why? You know, it, but it, th- this, this is it. Now notice, fourth, most liberal theologians sought to base theology on some foundation other than the absolute authority of the Bible. They believed that the traditional dogma of the supernatural inspiration of Scripture had been hopelessly undermined by historical critical research. Friends, go back to yesterday, put that in the context of Greg Boyd. You remember what he said? He said historical critical research has destroyed any notion of the uh, inerrancy of the Bible. So where, where do you think he fits? And I don't, I don't want to... Classify only to dismiss, friends. That, I, that, that's not, I don't want to do that. But on the other hand, we've got to help God's people understand these issues as well and, and learn how to read discerningly and critically without being critical. Reading critically with charity. 
And notice fifth, finally, perhaps unconsciously underlying the other features, liberal theology continued the drift toward divine immanence. God here is with us. God here is among us. And they've done so at the expense of the divine transcendence. God is other than you and I are. He is other. Begun by the Enlightenment and continued by the great German thinkers of the early 19th century. You know, at the end of the day, liberal theology's essence is anthropocentrism. That is, man is at the center of it all. Now, this, this, this is, uh, uh, you know, Grenz and Olson don't have an axe to grind. Um, and if you've read uh, Roger Olson, uh, he would not agree with all that we would necessarily agree with, uh, though he's, he's, he's an evangelical. Um, but but I, I, this is why I use them. I, I think this is a very helpful brief description of what, what theological liberalism is. Any thoughts or comments on, on that stuff? Go back to the slide. Any thoughts? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, same. Yep. Yeah, Christianity and... No, I, th I still think that one's helpful. Uh, written in 1923 <clears throat> uh, in response to uh, Emerson Fosdick, who was the, 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 the theological liberal um, that was... Uh, um, related to, uh, connected with Rockefeller and uh, the church he built. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there are just a number of those kinds of things. And I think uh, his, you know, um, Machen's conclusion about, about theological liberalism um, was it's a different, it's not Christianity. It's a different, it's a different religion was his conclusion. I, I think I would like to see Machen's work updated. For the present day, because because I, I think there are because of postmodernism, there are other pressure points on on interpretation uh, that I think is grounded in hermeneutics, and pre understandings that I think affect us pretty significantly. Anything else on that, Benjamin? No, I have other questions. Okay. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, I mean, it was, mm -hmm. well, some of it was, uh, I mean, you're getting, uh, you're seeing the connections, enlightenment, uh, crit critical theory, or, or I'm sorry, the, the cri uh, um, no, here, I'll say the word, uh, historical critical research, that was out of Germany, and so much of this was out of Germany. Uh, you get, so you get the German higher critical thinking, you get, you know, in the midst of this is, uh, I mean, more recently, Darwinian evolution, especially if you're thinking here in our own country, you get the Darwinian evolution and the implications of that. You get, you get the, the, the liberal church um, in the early part of last century. Um, and, and then in the midst of that, you get, you get then the fundamentals response and, and, the, and the divide started there. And so, um, so enlightenment, um, higher critical thinking, German, German thinking, uh, Darwinian evolution, thinking about uh, origin of the species, um, 
and, and then, and then um, <laughs> romanticism. I mean, you can't, the, the, the historical periods also were very influential because if you look at the romantic period of time, romanticism, what was critical about romanticism? Emotions. Uh, e emotions and, 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 and internal stuff and, and, and feelings. And so, I mean, you can hardly, you can hardly um, not be aware of some of those things to, to understand some of the effect. And if, 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 we're, if we're not, I think we won't fully understand some of where we are. Now, press further. Yeah. Yep. Well, it wouldn't be called the German school. Um, there is a German school that is now known as uh, there's a cultural Marxism and a German school, and there's some of that that's that's the language that's being used now. But but the German higher critical thinking or the historical critical uh, thinking would be some of it. Um, it, enlightenment going even further back um, and uh, far back. I mean, there's some key names. I can send you some of those if you're, if you're interested. I agree. I agree with you. No, Chris, I'm, I'm with you, and I think it could be helpful. And it's not, that it's, again, it's not to, to uh, uh, categorize and then dismiss. It's, it's, you know, friends, we need to be reading some of, some of what we would disagree with um, so that we know how to respond. Um, because others are reading it and are asking questions about it. At least I would hope they are, right? I mean, we wish that they would so that we could help them to process some of these things. Uh, there was another question over here first, wasn't there? If not, then Greg. On this uh, matter of nomenclature and the language used, my impression is that it was Yeah, yeah, and they expect that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's cart. Yeah, that's. Um, yeah, foundationalism. Um, are you familiar with this language? Foundationalism. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. When when you begin to talk about um, uh, Kant, Immanuel Kant, again, you go further back, and, and Rene Descartes, you talk about that which is, is foundational to our beliefs. And, and, and part, of, part of what happened was um, when we would read biblical texts, uh, there are certain foundational truths, commitments, um, and we approached the text almost as if it were a scientific textbook, and, and we would use a scientific methodology and so, so it's just, that's where, you know, it's, it's foundation. There are certain foundations that we affirm. Um, and some of that, what happened was, um, uh, Hodge, his systematic theology, his three-volume systematic theology, is, is really foundationalist, which you would have expected, right? He's just writing in that period of time. But, but the problem is, when you interpret texts, it's, it, it's not approached in a scientific way or a mathematical way. That is to say, if we just simply apply the methodological formula, then, then what we do is we, we, we will apply X plus Y plus Z. We turn the hermeneutical crank equals A. So we speak pretty definitively that all we need to do uh, is my, the Bible equals my interpretation 
and my interpretation equals the Bible, right? And, and so there, there's some, so where we've moved now today is there's what is referred to as chastened foundationalism. So it's not eschewing everything. There are foundations that we affirm when we, when we approach the Bible. But, but there's a chastenedness to it. There's a humility to it. Uh, it's, not, it's not as simple as X plus Y plus Z equals A. Now, let, let's not make it beyond what it is either, but that, that's in, in, in essence a, 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 a long, complicated conversation. Um, in essence, that's what I would say. Um, and so uh, there's a chase in foundationalism. And, and part, part of what foundationalism, they overreached. Um, and, and some of, if you, want, if you want the response, read some of the, some, some of the, uh, um, the postmodern responses. Some of the postmodern responses were, listen, um, unless you know truth exhaustively, you can't know truth at all. Now, do you agree with that? No. You can know truth truly without it being exhaustive. But with some of the overreach of foundationalism, to which then postmodernism responded, but that was way too much too, because postmodernism ended up in relativism. What's relativism? There is no truth. I mean, it's, 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 it's all individually determined. So there is no ultimate truth. That is, there is no, there's no larger story of truth that we can, we can imbibe. So, so th it's chastened. And, and I think that's, a, that's a, I think, a healthier way to look at it. And so there's, and, and accompanying that then is humility. I think there was a, a bit of a hubris, arrogance. Uh, you know, that you just simply followed a methodology and, and poop, there out popped uh, truth. Uh, and it's, it's yeah, not quite. Yeah. Yeah, di different, yeah. Lex Rex, Lex Rex, the law is the king. I'm addressing, I'm not saying that there aren't connections, um, but, you know, I, I'm not address, addressing, you know, the, 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 the theological political spectrum or whatever, but, but certainly uh, everything is affected. Yeah. Yes, and then we'll move on. No, I didn't. They did. <laughs> I agree with them. I agree with them. I think it was helpful. Yeah. Yep. That's why I think grounding ourselves in tradition or in history, a theological understanding mm -hmm. of Christian orthodoxy mm -hmm. that Christians have believed these things for thousands of years mm -hmm. is an important thing. It's mm -hmm. why the creeds are important, yeah. that sort of thing. But because of our reaction against Roman Catholicism and against more mainline Protestantism, mm -hmm. I find a general skepticism of history and tradition. Yeah. Creeds and things yeah. like that. So how 
That's changing, by the way. It is. Yeah. But how do we keep that change? Like, how do we ground ourselves in that? Yeah. Yeah, uh, some of it is, uh, that's, why you're, that's why you're where you are. God has called you to do that. Um, and, and we anchor ourselves. I think, I think at times, and this is a temptation, I think, I think the evangelical church, um, we're pretty entrepreneurial, and I think, I think that it's a strength and a weakness. I do. Um, and, and so we need to, um, what, everything needs to be innovative and fresh and creative, and yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, and yet there, there is something that, that, that we need to be tethered to something as well, and of certainly the text. Um, but I, I, think, I think there's a shift. Here's my concern with the shift. It, it's the retrieval. Um, and the retrieval, if, uh, in fact, there's a new book by Gavin Ortland uh, that's out uh, on retrievalism. And that's retrieving the, the, the tru- truths from the past, uh, the, you know, the, the tradition. And tradition is not on par with Scripture. It's not a capital T. But, but, it, but, it, but it's helpful. Uh, it submits to Scripture, ultimate, the ultimate authority. Um, the, the Scripture is the norma normans. It's the norming norm. Um, and creeds and confessions are normed by the norm. Uh, but, but they play a role, right? They play a role. Uh, the idea of a norm, the norma normans or the norming norm, it would be like this. If I came in and said to you, by the way, I'm six feet, six inches tall, what would you say? John, you'd say, no, you're not. And I would say, well, how do you determine that? How do you determine that? And you see, if we're postmodern, I can be six feet six if I want to. <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that the identity issue that's just really gone amok? No, John would say, wait a minute. No, 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 no. I, uh, uh, I would say you're probably 5'9". Uh, now, how do you determine 5'9"? Well, let me tell you, Greg, there's a norming norm. The norming norm is that 12 inches equals, ah, it's your norming norm too. Okay, nice. Yeah. That then determines every one of us could stand up next to that and we'd say, yeah, we could determine, right? Whatever questions, we'll determine it. We'll determine it. That's the authority of the Bible. It's the norming norm. It norms everything. And the, 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 but that doesn't mean that all of us are bad because we're not all the same height. No, but, but there is a standardizing norm that we measure to. Yeah. Nothing new under the sun. Yes. Yeah, that, that, to me, that gets to you know, one of the texts we looked at yesterday. Uh, to whom does God look? Isaiah 66, verse 2. The one who is humble and contrite and trembles at his word. So I, I agree. And I think that's partly what has happened with the chastened foundationalism. Um, and, and, and so there was, there was a, it, it just too strongly speaking, but, but, it, but the other side of that was you can't speak anything at all. And no, that's not accurate as well. Uh, did you have a follow-up? Yes. Yeah. Yep. That's that's Greg Boyd. But what was interesting is 
I've heard numerous different Christians, professors, theologians say that the doctrine of inerrancy is a newer doctrine yeah. that only came about because of the Enlightenment's attack on the That's the Bible and Scripture, which you threw up Augustine yes. in the fourth century. Exactly. Yeah. See, this, this is why it's important to know the, the, the history of the church. Um, I, I, you know, that's the Princetonian argument that I mentioned yesterday, Hodge Warfield. They, they were the inventors, they were the creators of inerrancy to respond to Darwinian evolution, to German higher critical thinking. And so the Princetonians, Hodge and Warfield, the, iner- the authority of the Bible, uh, but it wasn't a creation. They, they grounded it in Augustine. Um, and Augustine grounded it in the Bible. Right? Um, my, 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 here's, here's one of my concerns. Again, there's pendulum stuff, right? So your generation, retrieve, but don't codify. Remember, tradition is with a small t, and it's, the, it's not the norming norm. It's the, it's the norm that is standardized by the standardizing norm. That is the Bible. Um, so just remember that. Uh, and and um, but but thank you for bringing it back, right? Uh, but I think there has been that 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 concern uh, of anything tradition because it's uh, Roman Catholicism. It's been it's been negative. I, uh, so let let's retrieve, let's retrieve. You know, in some ways, let's plunder the Egyptians. Take what's good, spit out what's bad. Yeah. No need to apologize. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I get it, Chris. You know what? When we went through school, I think you did after I did, but you know what? It wasn't taught a lot. We would talk about church history. We wouldn't talk about historical theology. We didn't talk about the history of doctrine. We didn't talk about it. It's struggles with things. <laughs> keeps falling down. Um, but, but it's happening now. And that's part of, I think, the retrieval that's happening in our seminaries as well. But when I, when I was at school, it wasn't taught. That's coming. Okay, that's, a, that's what I was going to say. That's yeah, that's... You know, transmission yeah. 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 Yep. So I, think, I, I, th- I think it is many. Yeah, you're not alone. Uh, let me ask Greg, since you're, I think, uh, the elder, Greg the elder, do you remember getting much on historical theology beyond church history when you came through? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I may have been asleep. <laughs> One of my professors who went to Harvard for his PhD and came out of the Evangelical Herald in the Brown. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it's only happening in the last uh, 20 years. And some of it has been the, the, um, the retrieval or the recovery by people like Tom Oden. Uh, that's a name that you probably have heard. And, you know, he, he re, you know, did a commentary series on the ancient commentary series. And, and, and it's uh, published by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And he called the early church fathers um, for, for comments on on the biblical text, and, and so people like him have been used in significant ways. So we stand on shoulders of giants, and I'm thankful for what they have done. I'm very thankful. Yes. 
Yes, yeah. So uh, John Woodbridge has done some excellent work on that matter as well, but, but th this is sort of, wh what often happens is uh, there's going to be historical revisionism is, is what ends up happening. And so, right, Augustine, wow, that's a pretty strong statement. Uh, and even at that point, he's saying, it, listen, it's not, the problem is not with the, with the text itself, with the, with the Bible itself. It's, it's maybe a manuscript issue, um, or it may be your issue, <laughs> um, but, but the issue is not with the text because, because God himself cannot lie. There is not a problem with God, nor his word. And that's, that we're back once again with God and his word. So it becomes very critical. Well, friends, I, I think, I think, this conversation about understanding a little bit more about theological liberalism is helpful. I think it's a helpful grid to have in place. You know, the other thing, Chris, I was thinking about, so, so think about things like uh, when, when ethics is talked about at the expense of doctrine or truth. That's going to be a lean in this direction. So the, the concern is praxi, but it's, it's often at the expense or a tacit nod to the truth or doctrine. Um, another is going to be divine imminence. God is with us, and God, that, that, that's, the, that's the heart, honestly, that's the heart of liberation theology. It's lost sight of the divine transcendence. I'm not saying that, that liberation theology, theology the, all the impetuses are bad, but I'm not saying they're all good either. But what's, what's at the heart of it is this divine imminence, but it's at the expense of the divine transcendence. That's another just a marker that, that I think would be important. Another is the historical critical um, that, that you're going to hear about. So those are some, some, some things to, that, that would be prompters uh, for you to, to say, hmm, let, okay, let, let's look at that a little bit more carefully, not, not jump too quickly over it. Well, this is what theological liberalism looks like, by the way. Th there just really is no truth, and the only truth that they affirm is that there is no truth or something like that. Um, so when you talk about how do we determine issues of importance or significance, you know, that which is of first importance, right, that goes right here. You know, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, and then there's second importance and third importance. I mean, there, there, are, there are levels, right? Um, and, and for a theological liberal, they, they just don't affirm. They're just very hesitant. Now, let me say this. I'm not going to go down this path, but I'll show you another problem, and that is fundamentalism. Everything is of first importance. Really? I mean, uh, I mean uh, uh, do, you, do you deny membership from someone who cannot I clearly and explicitly identify the Antichrist? What? You don't? Oh, there is some order here. I mean, it's, it's, it's in the Bible, which makes it important, right? So we don't undermine or deny what's in the Bible. But there, there is an ordering of things, isn't there? And, and Paul would say there is that which is of first importance. And he also says in Romans chapter 14, verse 1, don't, don't divide over issues of that, where there are differences of audiophora of, of or matters of indifference, things that, that are not of first importance. Don't divide over them, he would say, right? But that's, this is another problem. Now, I'm not going to go down that path. Some of you may have come from a movement like that, but, but uh, that's a uh, problem. Uh, uh, of reality as well. Uh, here's now, uh, I think, a contemporary iteration of uh, theological liberalism. Paulo, you want to share something? What did I say? Well, I never know when someone's laughing what I said or didn't say. So I'm just, okay, all right. 
Um, it, it reminds me of this. Um, you know, I, I remember preaching, um, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, you preach this way. And I'm preaching away, and I get here, and I'm looking at, oh, yeah, this is recorded. I'm looking at Karen, my wife, and she's looking at me like, someone just died. And I'm thinking, what did I say? So now I'm preaching this way, and I'm thinking this way. You ever done that? I am trying to figure out what did I say that caused this response. I almost said, Karen, just tell me. I don't have a clue. I'm not remembering. I can't reconstruct it. So what did I do? What did I say? Um, and what was it? Yes, it was, it was talking about Noah. It was supposed to be talking about Noah, and I mentioned the ark and Moses. Yeah, 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 I wish that I could have corrected it then and there. But that response was, I thought, a little over the edge when I learned what it was that I had said. <laughs> but you know how that is. So I see, a, I see a, a laugh back there, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going this way, but I better go back that way. So anyway. This, I think, is, is sort of the, the contemporary iteration of theological liberalism. And I think it's how, and I call it progressive evangelicalism, and I, and I, and I consider a person like a Matthew Vines and others uh, who, um, uh, and again, you know, we, we're, we, last year we talked about gender dysphoria. It's a, real, it's a real thing. It's a real thing with which people struggle. Uh, but the answer is not expressive individualism uh, following internal sort of my delight, it's, it's, there's a duty. There's a, there's a, there's a duty. And it, the duty is to f- listen to the external authority. That is the authority of God. And that, friends, is the only way we will truly nourish, uh, be nourished and flourish. It's the only way. Um, so here I think are some, some, some... So when we approach the Bible, all of us come with certain presuppositions. We come with, with some pre-understandings when we approach the Bible. For example, a pre-understanding I have is that God has spoken. God speaks. God is Trinitarian. God speaks in a way that we understand. I mean, these are some of the pre-understandings with which I approach the Bible. I also would say that God, the Holy Spirit, who, who inspired this, this, this book, illuminates this book that enables me to understand it. I'm telling you, I'm putting it on the table what my, my pre-understandings of reading this Bible are. I'm, I'm trying to say, so what is it that leads some like Matthew, Vines, and others what is it that leads them? And I think today there's especially, it feels especially acute. Here are some of them. Proponents have affirmed to be evangelical in name, though it is clear they are not evangelical in belief or theology. Today it manifests in a few presuppositions the reader of the Bible brings to the text of Scripture. Number one is an epistemology of experience. That is, my experience is the ground of what can and cannot be true, and it is absolutized and universalized. Now, that, we talked about that a little bit yesterday, but this is the epistemology of experience. And if that's the case, then who are you to tell me that my experience is, is, is well, not, not that it's wrong, but that your interpretation of your experience is misguided. Who are you to say that? And if you say that, you are denying and undermining them as a person because you are cutting off their identity. That's just, that's just how it's understood today. I'm not saying bad on them. I'm just saying that's, that's the person that we are seeking to minister to today. And we need to understand it. And it's also why I think one of the reasons, one of what I've listed as six, one of the reasons by which a person can approach the text and come up with, a, with an interpretation that the church hasn't for 2,000 years 
And all of a sudden, it's like, wow, God the Holy Spirit woke up. Second, expressive individualism and immediatism. Each one has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and we must live it out, we must express it, rather than conform to models or authority of others. Because if I am conforming to models or the authority of others, that is to say, even the Bible itself, what God has said, it denies my personhood. And, and so the other thing that happens is, because I, I, I'm not going to do this, if anybody questions any of this stuff, it's not, it's not repressing it. It's not, it's not dying to self. It's living to self. Th- that's, what's, that's what's being said. And so it really is, remember we talked yesterday. Did God really say? So let's just think about this. Expressive individualism and immediatism. Expressive individualism. Yes, yes. God did say, yes, if you want to save your life, focus on yourself. No, no, wait a minute. If you want to save your life, express yourself. Now, what does he say? Daily. It, it, see, it's, it's upside down. It is upside down. But when, 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 you, when you come to the text with that way, and, and, and that now becomes the norma normans. That is, that's the norming norm. My own epistemology of experience, which then is expressed individually, that is the norming norm by which everyone else is. And this is why, this is why there is such uh, 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 dogmatism that, you know what, it's not, just, it's not just that I get to express myself, you are obligated to accept it. So it, it, it goes to that degree. And the whole notion of immediatism is now. Now. In other words, there, there's, there's no delayed anything. Nothing. And, and, and just so you know, th- this is where I think, there, you know, when we talk about Montanism and, and the, the, the Holy Spirit speaking to me now and fresh and immediate and that sort of thing, uh, th- this I think is a, is, a, is, a, is a big one that I think people are expecting. Think about this. As you, as you, as you regularly teach and preach the Bible, if you don't have, if you don't immediately apply everything that the Bible says immediately, today you're failing as a preacher. Now, let me just ask. Do you think there's any truth that's important for somebody to know that may not necessarily be lived out today, but you know what? In three years, it's going to be critical to their spiritual well-being. Do you think that could be the case? So when we live with this notion of immediatism, you know what? Learning something from the past, learning something about that, that doesn't immediately apply to me, who cares? Well, we ought to care. That's, built, that's catechizing. Because, I mean, how many of us were prepared for coronavirus a month ago? Yeah, well, all that to say, this press to immediatism, and we feel it as pastors. Uh, I don't, you don't have this for my kid. You don't have this for whatever. And this notion of immediatism. And, and now, that also is not just how we live, but it's how we approach the text. And if it doesn't immediately apply right now, um, then we either uh, reinterpret it so that it does, or we just dismiss it. Third, a spin or a take. Well, that's your take. What's your take? Uh, a spin or a, it's a construal of life within a natural order, not supernatural. That's very intentional. It's a natural order. 
that does not recognize itself as a construal and has no room to grant plausibility to the alternative. What does this say? What this says is, you, Joe, have a take. You, John, have a take. Greg, you've got a take, but I don't. Everybody has a take except me. Why? Because who's the authority? Right here. So uh, this is why we dismiss others. This is why you think about our, our dialogue today. We can't dialogue. Because if we disagree, you're dismissing me, or whatever the case might be, or that's just your take, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm, not, I'm not biased. No. Well, this is the way we approach the, the text of Scripture. There's another, fourth, ethics of empathy and justice. A concern for the feelings and sensitivities of persons and an acute attention to the internal character of people's experience. The currency of this ethic is, for, is the personal narrative and the sharing of feelings. Truth emerges from the empathetic encounter as people bravely and authentically articulate their stories in a manner true to themselves. These stories and the feelings that they express should be honored as sacred, textual, sacred scripture, a sacred story. There's a, there's a parallel. And we should be careful not to invalidate or judge either. Such an ethic is concerned about anything that might negatively impact upon people's feelings. So th this is the ethic of empathy and justice. And let me tell you one of the implications of this. People conclude that they are more empathetic and have greater justice than God himself. So that, because I'm more caring and compassionate than God is, when he talks about hell, he can't mean it. Or that's just a spin, or that's just a take, right? And so you reinterpret based upon your ethic of compassion and justice. A fifth, the hermeneutic of suspicion. This was uh, Kevin Van Hooser's work. And in essence, what this one is, this was a postmodern one, the hermeneutic of suspicion says, I'm not sure we can trust or believe the author. I'm not so sure when we read texts, I'm not so sure we can believe them. They've, they've, got, a, they've got an agenda. Uh, they've got, they've got uh, and you know, some of it is uh, histories written by, written by the victors, not the losers. And so all this sort of uh, stuff that comes into play. So it's incre incredulity towards meaning, a deep-set skepticism concerning the possibility of correct interpretation, provoked by an inadequate view of God and by the announcement of God's death. That's how Kevin Van Hooser described it. But in other words, when we read the Bible, then we don't read it with a hermeneutic of humility. We don't read it as if God has spoken once and for all. We read it very suspicious that this is against me or this is against some group this or it needs help uh, to, to to really be understood rightly there's a there's a suspicion when we read the text and there's a six the critical theory I think this is a more relatively recent one but the critical theory uh, some of the language that's used is uh, cultural Marxism uh, right or wrong, uh, most of us know what Marxism is, that there is a, the, 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 the oppressed and the oppressor, and there's wealthy and, and, and the poor, and, and, and that's, the, that's the worldview in which this is understood. The, the cultural Marxism does it in the matter of cultural conversations and discussions. And, and here's a critical theory. It's an ideology that divides the world into oppressed groups and oppressor groups, 
focusing on an analysis of power dynamics between the oppressed and their oppressors. That is the term intersectionality. Anyone ter- heard of the term intersectionality? Yeah, and that, that's what this, this will, will emphasize. I'll show you a grid in just a minute. But it seeks to liberate the oppressed. Now, now on the one hand, that's not a bad thing. But, but is, the, is, the, is the worldview the right thing? That, that's going to be the, the heart of this issue. Um, and and it, what we'll find is it's a different, it's a different worldview. Um, uh, it's, it is currently the, re- the reigning theoretical paradigm in academic disciplines like gender studies, cultural studies, critical pedagogical, critical race theory, anthropology, feminist studies, and queer theory and forms the ideological foundation for large segments of the secular social justice movement. Critical theory also functions as a worldview, but it tells an alternate, comprehensive, overarching story about reality. The story of critical theory begins not with creation, but with oppression. Um, and uh, let, me, let me just, uh, and, and I think this, for example, is a matrix of oppression. So this comes from Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice, uh, 2007. And so what you do is you have the identity categories. Now again, we talked last year about some of the identity issues and where we are with identity and expressive individualism and all this stuff fit, fits together and that finds expression here in what is now known as intersectionality. And so what you have is you have all these different categories, race, sex, gender, sexual orientation, class, ability, disability, religion, age, and then you have the privileged social groups the border social groups, the targeted social groups, and then the ism. Everyone ends in ism. And, and, and what happens is in intersectionality is the one who has been oppressed the most, because remember, experience, experience is more truthful than truth. And so the one who has been oppressed the most has the truth to speak. And anyone who has less of those has nothing to say. You don't understand. You, you have nothing to say. Um, and, and, and so th- this, I think, uh, has described sort of where we are. And, and so then when, when the Bible is approached, this, this pre-understandings of, of, of how we approach the biblical text, uh, it, it, it affects us. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, Graham Cole said, whereas Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, today we betray him with a hermeneutic. I think the Bible is being undermined, and I think uh, in, in large part, these, what I've looked at here, these, these six different things, I think this is, a, this is a spirit with which we come to the Bible, and it doesn't make sense. We reinterpret it so that we end up then with interpretations that the church hasn't affirmed in 2,000 years. Now, that doesn't mean that the church got it right for 2,000 years. I'm not saying that. I am not saying that. But we don't simply spit into the wind of 2,000 years either. So it, 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 it says something. Uh, it's not the absolute authority. The Bible is. It says something. Now, the other thing that I think is happening, and I'll get to you in just a moment. The other thing that is happening is there is much of what, what is said here with which we would agree. But I think that's why we need to be wise because who wouldn't care? Who wouldn't care for the oppressed? We should who shouldn't care about racial inequality? We should. Who shouldn't? I mean, that, that's, Christians do that. Christians are committed to that. They are, they are on the front line of that. And they have been historically, by the way. And there have been some missteps, huge missteps, huge missteps. But at, but at the end of the day, we, we, we can't buy into this stuff 
because it's a different worldview. It's a different view of understanding God. It's a different view of understanding the problem. It's a different view of understanding the solution. And, and so we end up with a different understanding of God and the Bible and salvation. It, it's very different. Yes? Uh, sure. Uh, uh, from it's my take. That's your spin, my take, right? Uh, sure. Um, I I th- I think uh, by and large it was misguided. I think it was an attempt to to articulate some of these things, but I think it was misguided. Um, and you know, you think about it on, and I think that there is there's a history to this as well. So, I mean, I mean who, who, if you want to talk about justice, think about the term dikaiosune. Justice, righteousness. Of course we care about it. We must care about it. Um, so how, how, is that, how is that lived out then? I mean, vertically, and then, and then living it out this way. Um, so we also, also then acknowledge there are, oh, let me just ask, um, a take to a spin. Are there implications to justification? Are there social implications to justification? Okay, so wow, we're pressing a little further. So is there such a thing as social justice? Uh, You're leaning your, okay. Yeah, yeah, there is. Now, has it always been done rightly? No, it hasn't. It hasn't. Uh, But but there are implications. This, put it in the category of justification and sanctification. That is to say, are there implications in how we treat people? Absolutely. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, there is a concern with the social gospel. That's, that, there's a historical concern with that because it, it, it was really, that was the language used of, the, of modern theological liberalism. It eviscerated the gospel is what it did. And you can see what, what happened about that. You know, everything was ethic-related. It was denial of authority. It was, I mean, all those other kinds of things. But, but here, we do this well, which is not good. But we do it well, and that is, well, because, because they did that, we are certainly not going to do anything about that, right? So, so it really, in the midst of, since you're asking about that issue, in the midst of, then from that point on, the fundamentals to the birth of the evangelicals in the 1940s, there was a pulling away of the, even, of the fundamentals from engagement in these kinds of issues, which was an oddity. It was an oddity. So that Carl Henry in 1947 can, can write the uneasy conscience of fundamentalism, and he can say, listen, th- this is part of what we need to be doing. We need to be engaging in these sorts of things. This is what the gospel compels us to do. It's not the gospel, but there are entailments to the gospel, and this is it. This is part of it. And so it was a recovery of that, of that sort of thing. Even in our own, think about this, even our own statement of faith. Our own statement of faith. In 1912, we had in our 1912 statement of faith, in our own movement, uh, Article 12 addressed issues of charitable institutions, com- com- you know, justice and, com- and, and, and charitable institutions, in that we would, we, would, we would care for these kinds of things. That is, there's an entailment to the gospel that we profess. 1950, it wasn't in there. Why? 
because we're in the, in, on the other side in, in historically in that period of time. Here we are now, 2008. <clears throat> there it is. And I think, it, I, think it's, I think it's right to include it. So that's even some of our own history. Um, so often, and this is where I said yesterday, uh, John is not here, but, but remember I said often there's, a, there's, a, there's the pendulum. And, and there's something over here to which we're going to respond, but often we end up over here. We end up too far over here. So on that one, I, I, I think there was an attempt to, and please hear me, I'm not saying I've got all the answers. I don't. But, but, but I, I think it was too much. You know, when I read that document, I thought, you know what, they, they are attempting to address certain things, but they threw in the kitchen sink. I mean, they, they included everything. It's like, wow. Uh, and I think it's all too easy. And this is why, this is why I've said this. I want to be very careful, dear friends, that we don't classify and then dismiss. Because I, I, I think that's somewhat what's happened. Uh, classification and dismissal. And I, I don't think it's healthy. But it doesn't mean that there aren't some issues of concern. Right? Anything else? Yeah. Uh, which other side? So the side that would be, well, a side that would be postmodern. Yeah. So I'm just, I, I'm weak in the area of reading modern day. Yep. Uh, here's what I would do. Um, I'm guessing that's, that'll be your issue, not, not everyone else's, Mike. So email me. And I'll be glad to give you some names. Okay. Uh, th thank you. Yes, Cedric. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And, and, and even I would say this, Cedric, that, that we, may not be, we may not be preaching through this lens, but what lens are they hearing it through? Yes. Yeah. I think it's absolutely critical. And that's where I think sometimes, you know, let, let's, let's not overassume. Let's rightly assume. Uh, and that is, uh, um, let's figure out where people are. And that's why I'm doing this with us now here today. It's sort of, it's an attempt. You can disagree. I'm okay. I'm not offended by that. Make it better. Help me to think it through in a different way. But I think this is, I think this has a huge impact on how we approach the Bible today that describes and explains where we end up out there, the things that we're hearing out there that are just like, really? You, exactly. Time and time and time again. Absolutely. So uh, that's why I, I thought it would, I've, I've, like you, I've been giving th a lot of thought to this as well. And, um, you know, it, I, 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 it, it struck me that when, when we think of the biblical text, uh, I, I'm reading through a devotional. It's a delightful devotional, by the way, uh, and it's um, uh, uh, compiled by Nick Needham. Um, and it's a daily reading uh, of the early church fathers. And so each month is a, focuses on a different church father. And um, this, this one, Irenaeus, was February. It was the month of February. Um, and uh, this month, it's Gregory the Theologian. I'm, I'm not kidding. It's actually 
Gregory of Nazianzus, who was one of the Cappadocian fathers. You remember the Cappadocian fathers? Yeah, they were, they, were, they were strong proponents of the Trinity. When we think about the doctrine of the Trinity today, they were some that were fundamental uh, to the... To the, uh, the anyway, his, I'm reading him from March. But here's what Irenaeus said. So when you talk about uh, how early was this? You know, who, who's thinking about these kinds of things? Um, and, and so we heard about Augustine from yesterday. Here's Irenaeus. Here's what he says about interpretation, and I love it. Because he, he then distinguished the heretics from those who would read the Bible rightly. Here's what he says. By ripping texts out of context, dressing them, up, dressing them up in new meanings, and changing one thing into another, they deceive many by this evil skill of adjusting the Lord's oracles to their own opinions. They behave as though an expert artist, and I love his illustration, they behave as though an expert artist had put costly jewels together into a beautiful image of a king. And then someone else had taken the picture to pieces. They broke it. They rearranged the jewels and produced a shoddy image of a dog or of a fox. And then claimed this was the king's beautiful image made by the expert artist. The deceiver points to the jewels which the original artist had so wonderfully arranged into the king's image, but which the deceiver has now reshaped into the image of a dog. By pointing to the jewels, he deludes the ignorant who have no idea what a king looks like convincing them that this pathetic picture of a fox is the image of a beautiful king. Likewise, these heretics stitch together myths and fables, and then by violently twisting Scripture's words, phrases, and parables, they try to adjust the oracles of God to their own fabricated fictions. Friends, don't give God's people a dog. Give them Christ. That's why we've talked about Christ, the promise and the fulfillment, the, the, the center point of the scriptures. I love this statement. I just, it's a very helpful. Um, we'll take a break in just a couple of minutes. Um, he, so then I also asked this question, how do we then move, how does, how does what we affirm of, of, of the Bible or something like that, what's the progression in which we go? Because I, I'm, I think about this often. Um, and, and so here's a, a pattern of how biblical truth is undermined, denied, and doctrine slides into theological liberalism. Uh, this comes from Moeller, and, and it's an article, Air Conditioning Hell, how liberalism happens. And he says, first, a doctrine simply falls from mention. So this is why I would say to us who are teaching and preaching, um, you know, when we, especially when we, when we teach expositionally, uh, the, the Lectio Continua, and which, is, which is a good thing, but, but sometimes we can become um, um, too myopic. Don't forget to step back occasionally to see the big picture of the whole of the Scriptures again. One of the things that might help you with that is pull out a systematic theology textbook occasionally, look through the table of contents. What have you not mentioned? What has not been mentioned over the course of the last month? What have you neglected? And I'm not saying you have to teach on that doctrine, but you know what? As you're teaching through the scriptures, there are illustrations. There are additional sorts of teachings supportive to what the main text is teaching. Don't be afraid to make some of those illustrative connections to some doctrines that are important that need to be said. So, so let's just be sure, and I would say this, that often if we're so close in the mirror that we end up with, as a frog in the kettle, we won't notice these sorts of things where we need then help, someone to say, and that's what I'm saying is systematic theology, what haven't I mentioned and why? And it's not necessarily intentional neglect or oversight, friends. 
Oftentimes it might be unintentional, but even the unintentional will communicate something. Greg, would you be okay with that as a homiletician? Yep, you'll get it. You will get yeah. all of these. Just have eyes open for it. And I would add to what you said about checking the table of contents. Look at the scripture index uh-huh. of uh, systematic theology yeah. to see if your passage is there. Yep. And the other tool is the uh, dictionary of image, images. Yeah. Leland Riken? Dictionary of Biblical image, Imagery. That's, that's very helpful. Um, yeah, there's something else I was going to say. Um, I, will, I will notice this. He, he said, yes, except. I don't know if you caught that. Yeah, I, I did. Um, but but that, that's helpful, Greg. Thank you. Um, second, a doctrine is revised and retained in reduced form. So we will mention it, but, but you know, we won't do the sharp, sharp edges of this truth. And it's what I said yesterday. You know, we will... We will either duck or we will state it silently or quietly or with our mouth, hand over our mouth, or we will concede, make concessions or sort of thing. And you know what? We're all tempted. Third, a doctrine is subjected to a form of ridicule. You know, you read some of the stuff. For example, uh, I'll just refer back because it's public. Uh, the way Greg Boyd spoke of the inspired and errant scripture. It was ridicule is what it was. And so you take a doctrine and, and, you know, yeah, come on, God, God killing his son on the cross, you know, divine child abuse. and Yeah, it's ridicule is what ends up happening. People will hear this. People will hear this. And finally, a doctrine is reformulated in order to remove its intellectual and moral offensiveness. I find this helpful. I mean, there are many other things that, that, that could be followed. You know, you want a contemporary example of the regress of a, of a, a regressive doctrine or the doctrinal drift or however you want to refer to it. It does happen. Uh, you know, you think about, about the doctrine of the scriptures, where that happens time and again. You think about the doctrine of eternal conscious punishment. Up until Schleiermacher, the 18th century, it was included in statements, creeds, confessions, statements of faith on the on same category as would the other truths of, of affirming uh, the Trinity and affirming other, other truths because God did say, did God really say that you shall not die? God did really say that you, you will die is what God said. But you, you follow that and, and, and um, uh, Richard Bauckham has written an article on, on the history of that doctrine and he said there is no doctrine that has, been, that has been the universal statement and affirmation of the church that has so been revolutionized in the other way since the 18th century than the doctrine of eternal conscious punishment. And think about, think about what Schleiermacher stood for and theological liberalism stood for, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a surprise to you because everything of which eternal conscious punishment affirms is everything of which the contemporary culture denies, generally speaking. So th- th- and, and the contemporary parallel is the Boy Scouts of America. You look at the drift over the years. The last 20 years, uh, it is, uh, we will, we will and, and you can trace it, it and it, it happened fast, where it's, it's Boy Scouts of America. It's not even for boys anymore. Uh, and and the, the, the shift from affirming that, that those boys that struggled with, uh, that were gay or homosexual, they could, they could be a part of it, but not the leaders. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, the leaders too. Yes. Uh, and it was just, it was, it was peace after peace after peace. Now, that's a secular example. All I'm saying is that is a good parallel to the pressures we're feeling here, that we're feeling here. There's, a, there's another thing. This is just not doctrinal, but it's also there are moral. Andrew Walker writes, uh, uh, and uh, we're not going to debate this one right now, Hillsong shifts on homosexuality, or do we sing Hillsong songs or not? Do we sing Hillsong and Bethel songs or not? Well, that, uh, I'm, I'm using this so that uh, there are steps of regression on moral matters. How does this happen? So that, and let me say this, often, often, um, what you'll find in the church is parents who have strongly affirmed biblical truth will, when an adult child shifts morally or ethically on an issue, it seems the parent follows the child or the adult child. Not always, but often. So friends, I'm just saying that if, that if, that if you have parents that have adult children that are in that, living that life, you need to take extra special pastoral care to talk to them, process it with them, because generally speaking, generally speaking, apart from a divine work of God in their lives to stand firm, they, they will shift. So here's sort of the, per yeah, I will right after this, yep. Uh, here's, here's some steps of regression. Uh, relativize the issue with other issues. This is no different than, um, and in fact, you know what? People are saying that homosexuality, it's no different than divorce. And you know what? Uh, the church, the way we respond to divorce today, give homosexuality 20 years, it'll be the same thing. It's going to be a non-issue. Hmm. Hmm. Does divorce matter anymore? Huh. That's a good question. Yeah, well, yeah, it does. It does, because God has said something about it, right? Um, and and it, we haven't always gotten that one right either, but, but the Bible does say something about it. Uh, and, and, yeah, a whole lot more we could say. Be uncertain about the issue. Well, we just don't know. We just don't know. Or there are conflicting scholars. That's a big one. We're going to talk about that at the end. That's a big one, sort of this impervious ignorance that we talked about yesterday, impervious ignorance. Imperious ignorance. Refuse to speak publicly on the issue. Well, that's just not what we talk about here. We just, we don't, you know, that, that, that yes, I'm not saying it's not an issue, but we just don't talk about it here. We don't, you know, there are other things we will talk about, right? But, but we're just, we just, hmm. Yeah. Uh, be indifferent toward the issue. And, and then you accept the issue, then you affirm the issue, and then you require the issue. They're just steps, steps of, of regression that I think happen. And so uh, let me end in this one. I found this interesting in that, uh, and, and this is going to be a transition to the, what we're going to look at next then, and that is, um, and, and this is Rebecca McLaughlin who's written a book, some of you have read, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. Uh, this was CT's beautiful orthodoxy book of the year. Now, one of the issues that, that, the, that, that the evangelical church is struggling with as well, and that is it's, it's you know, you look at the, at the various uh, uh, lists of oppression and, and, and uh, gender is one of them. And so can, can the complementarian position even be affirmed anymore? That is that God has created men and women equal, but there are, there are, difference, there are differences in roles. 
and differences in responsibilities. Can we even say that anymore? And hardly, uh, because of the day and, and culture in which we live, and in fact, think about this, apart from, apart from what God has said, listening to what he said, and I'm not saying there aren't differing views. There are differing views. I'm, I'm just saying, listen to what Rebecca says here. It's just, it, was, it was interesting to me when I read this. Rebecca struggles with, does anyone know Rebecca or the name? Uh, it's a very good, it's a good book. It's a very helpful book. Um, and she, she has struggled with same-sex attraction. Um, she is a, a, she's a PhD, as I recall, in, in English literature. She has done some uh, biblical studies at uh, Oak Hill in, in England. Um, and, and, and in essence, what she's going to tell us here is this. And I'll just read it. Uh, she writes the, uh, and this is an essay in CT from her book, What If I'm Not the Submissive Type? The subtitle is, I used to be repulsed by Ephesians 5. Then I learned to see Paul's instructions through a gospel lens. And friends, the point is this. I, I think apart from a gospel lens, that is a Christocentric lens, none of the Bible's teaching will make sense. In, in this day, uh, maybe in any day, right? So the Holy Spirit who inspired this, it requires his illumination to make sense of these sorts of things. And that's true for all of us, friends, every one of us. So as I'm seeing a number of men here, that means that, that, that for those of you that are married, that means you sacrificially love your wife to the point of death. Welcome. Welcome. And for, for wives, it, it means that you uh, submit to your husbands is what it would say. But in the church, it also means that there are, there, there's a family. It's a church family. But you see, this stuff won't make sense as Rebecca would say, apart from the gospel lens. Again, hear me. I'm not saying that there aren't differences of view on this. There are. But here's what I don't want. I don't want imperious ignorance. That is to say, because there are all these various views, we can't say anything. That, that, that goes too far. And see, what happens then is any, any, the, the voice of Scripture is silent, silenced on that issue. We can, we, we can disagree. But it's not as if it doesn't, these, these things don't matter. And I'm, I just picked on this one, not picked on it, but because of, because of how Rebecca processed this. This, is not, this was not a natural response. John, let's have a break.